this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the unique challenges of tennis. We've often referenced on this podcast how tennis can be a you know very difficult and challenging sport for a number of reasons. Um, but in this episode, we'll really dive into why that is. Um, I, many tennis players have had the experience of um, noticing, you know, the, the the challenges of the sport, whether it be some of the mental demands uh, as well as some of the physical demands and the impact that that can have on the mental side of the game. And I think a, a good place to start with this discussion would be uh, with the scoring system, um, because um, as, as we've discussed in the past, uh, this scoring system is a system of instant feedback, where after every point you either win or you've lost that previous point. So, you know, the, the way that I would say the sort of the default state of a lot of players is to ride that emotional roller coaster of, okay, I win a point. I am a winner. Let's go. Come on. I lose a point. What am I doing that? You know, I, I can't play. This is, this is ridiculous. So, you know, without, without, training without thinking of, of um, how you want to handle the situation in a specific way, um, it can be very easy to let the emotions of that instant feedback um, be sort of like an emotional roller coaster out there. Um, so, you know, that, I think that as we think about that scoring system, I know you've in the past, Brian, referred to it as sort of like a devilish um, scoring system. I think that that is one one aspect of why this, this sport um, is so difficult. Yeah, I think uh, I've called it devilish because it has multiple levels. It has points, it has games, it has sets, and it can become, uh, I think until you gain some experience with how to play and learn how to win matches, it can be difficult to understand what really matters in terms of the scoreboard. So as you mentioned, Josh, um, you know, you're, you've got that instant feedback and so you you can be easily tricked into judging everything that occurs. And I think maybe with the exception of golf, um, that doesn't really happen in other sports. A lot of other sports tend to be a little bit more flow. Um, uh, of course, it does happen in, in some, you know, maybe more, uh, again, individual sports like shooting or something where you know you have some objective feedback after every shot. Um, but here in tennis, I think the challenge is that, um, a lot of these points, while we need to amass points in order to win games, we need to amass games in order to win sets. A lot of these points aren't as weighty or consequential to the scoreboard that really matters. And, and I think that can be the confusing part. How do you handle that emotionally? Knowing that a point is not necessarily something that is hugely consequential to the scoreboard um so for example you know if we're playing a match and and you win the first point of the match you're up 15 love have you really won anything of significance no and i haven't really lost anything of significance the only thing that's changed is the probability of who might win this game um and i think that's a difficult concept i think a lot of sports don't have it because they don't have that level of scoring. And so it requires a lot of uh, emotional control. It really requires knowing 
what's actually important in the moment um, and what you need to do. So I, I do feel like that is a, a definitely a difficult challenge for players that we don't see in other sports. You know, a sport like American football, yes, you have a play and play stops similar to tennis, but not every person is being evaluated in an objective way on every single play. Um, and that's what's different about tennis. There is this notion of, okay, I lost the point or I won the point and how to deal with that. Um, so I do think that that is a, yeah, my, I, I believe that is why it is devilish in a way because it is tricking you into focusing on something that perhaps um, isn't as important as you think it is. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's really important that, you know, if, if we can take a step back and um, once you're not in the heat of the moment, of the match and of, you know, losing that, that point that just happened, if you can take a step back, it, it can, it's a lot easier to realize that each individual point or even each individual game doesn't have the significance that you think it does in that moment. So I think, I think that's a great point. Um, so I, so if we're sort of thinking this in terms of, um, different reasons why that to, to me, that's, that, that's a big one. That's, you know, maybe the first one. Um, I, I, I think another, another big reason is how, um, you know, tennis is a sport that definitely can invite comparison, um, to, to other players. Um, I think this, this can be for a number of reasons, but you know, we're, it's a sport of rankings and ratings, um, which certainly invites comparison You're, you know, after each match or each tournament, your ranking or rating generally goes up or down. Um, and it's easy to look around to your peers, um, people, your age, people on your team, perhaps, um, people that you're training with and compare it's one number compared to another number. And that might happen from the individual. If it's a, you know, junior tennis can certainly happen from parents. Coaches can certainly play a role here. But um, as we've talked about in terms of some of the dangers or threats of too much comparison and how that, you know, thinking too much about expectations and outcomes can end up putting a lot of pressure on an athlete. Um, that's that aspect is, is another aspect that um, contributes to the difficulty of the sport. Um, you know, seeing, it can also have to do with, you know, seeing what other players are doing in terms of their training, right? Um, are they working on a certain shot that maybe you haven't mastered yet? Are they training at a certain academy or with a certain coach? Um, so I, I think there's there's a lot of factors there, but it, it can be very, I think tennis is a sport where it can be very easy to, to have those types of comparisons. For sure. <clears throat> I mean, and let's face it, a match is against, you know, one-on-one two people or a doubles match two-on-two. So there's naturally going to be a comparison just in the, in the matchups. Um, and so some people might be saying, well, what's the danger of that? Um, you know, and when we're comparing ourselves to others, um, I guess there are a couple things I think about. <clears throat> One are we, you know, in terms of how we're, who we're comparing ourselves to, um, is that, a, you know, the proper bar to set? Meaning, um, do I just want to be better than so-and-so or do I want to become the best I can be? You know, and maybe whoever you're thinking about comparing yourself to, um, maybe that's not the highest standard you could reach. Or 
I think we also know this, Josh. Sometimes we, as human beings, compare ourselves to people who are far beyond where we are, and it's just in order to kind of make ourselves feel bad about where we are. Um, but I think the answer to that is, can you focus more on comparing yourself to you? Say, are you better than you were three months ago? Are you better than you were six months ago? Um, and just because so-and-so is working with a coach or at a particular academy, they've lived a completely different life than you. They've made different choices. They have a different genetic background than you. Um, while there might be some good information in understanding how your peers are doing things, um, you have to figure out what is best for you. Um, so ultimately, I think uh, the comparison piece is it's a difficult thing to deal with, especially um, in the junior area. And I think um, with respect to something like UTR and the college recruitment process, it's real and it's it's tough. Um, it's hard to say, oh, just don't worry about that. But um, we both know as college, you know, former college coaches, that that's one of the first things a college coach will look at. So to try to tell players it doesn't matter, um, it's not completely disingenuous, but um, it does matter. But focusing on it doesn't make it better. Um, and, and so that's that's a really hard challenge is that we have these ranking systems and rating systems that, that players will often use to drive their own self-worth, to drive their own self-belief. And, and that's, a, that's a dangerous part of like when you're creating your self-image, you don't want it to be based on some algorithm sitting on a server in Silicon Valley, California. Uh, it should be based on more than that. And I think that, that is a, that's definitely a challenge here, uh, that not only the comparison piece, but that we have these systems of ranking and rating people um, that are used quite heavily, even if you're an adult player. And in the United States, using sort of the NTRP system, um, you know, whether you're a 3.5, a 4.0, a 4.5, a 5.0, there's a lot of churn that goes on around that and playing these different leagues and so forth. So um, it can be can be very problematic for, for players. Um, you know, I think some other things that are unique to individual sports that you, you were talking about earlier, Josh, you know... Um, one, this idea that everybody is watching. I think that's true in almost all individual sports. And that can there can be some pressure there because I think one of the things that maybe is the greatest – I don't have any scientific data on this. But I think maybe one of the greatest pressures that we feel as humans is being evaluated by others. And that's certainly – you know the spotlight is much more on you in a sport like tennis or individual sports than, than others. Um, and then another thing you brought up before, and I'd like you to share this quote, is the, the idea of tennis as a, as a lonely sport and how Andre Agassi talked about that. Yeah, so from, from Andre Agassi's, um, I believe it was from his book, uh, Open, um, he, shared, he shared a great quote. I mean, there's, you know, it's been well documented, some of the challenges that, that he had with, with the sport, both, um, I would say mostly in terms of earlier in his career, in terms of growing up, going to Voluntary Academy and, you know, early in his professional career. Um, but just in terms of him feeling pretty lonely out there in a tennis court. And the, the, the quote from him is, in tennis, you're on an island. 
Of all the games men and, and women play, tennis is the closest to solitary confinement. And I think it's interesting because this this individual aspect of the sport, the fact that, you know, other than doubles, it's generally just you out there. You don't have teammates. In most situations, you don't have a coach with you during a match. Um, of course, there are exceptions here, but um, it's generally just you. It might be, you know, a long match, two, three hours. Um, you know, it, you have to be able to handle everything that, that um, an opponent might throw at you, all the ups and downs of the match that we've discussed. Um, and it can be tough. It's just, you know, for, for to be by yourself without talking to anybody for two or three hours in that, you know, highly emotional situation can, can be tough for anybody. And then when you start to, to include some of the physical um, demands of the sport as well, um, there, there's extra layers of challenges. So um, I think, you know, some athletes, and I would actually put myself in this category in terms of what drew me to the sport. um, But, but some athletes thrive in that situation where maybe, um, you know, they, they like the fact that it's individual. They like the fact that it's just them out there and, you know, they take on that responsibility of, you know, being an individual athlete where everything falls on them. Um, you have a chance to sort of like, you know, it's just you, which can be seen as lonely, but you have a chance to think and problem solve and manage the situation as you deem right. Um, rather than, you know, relying on a full team, um, where for other players that feels really lonely and they maybe are drawn towards doubles or some of the team aspects of the sport. Um, and it, it can be, it can be really tough. I think, um, you know, Agassiz's quote um, de- definitely summarizes the feelings of a large section of players. Um, but I think it's, you know, I, I think it's, it's split. I think many players who end up um, playing the sport for a long time play it because of that individual aspect and they thrive in that situation, but it it can definitely be a a challenge for, for many. Absolutely. And I think if you're feeling that challenge, that it is lonely out there, um, you know, I think we can learn to handle that better. If you can learn to become more comfortable with um, being on your own or, you know, spending alone time, maybe, doing some meditation or journaling, uh, contemplating your thoughts more. I think the more comfortable you can become uh, being alone and being with your own thoughts, uh, you know, and not everybody's that way. We all have, you know, different makeups to our personality. Not that those aren't changeable because they are. Personality is definitely not permanent. And that's the reason I'm bringing this up is that you can learn to be more comfortable being alone. And in fact, um, you know, Stoic philosophers talk about the necessity of being alone and contemplating your thoughts. Um, and, you know, something like journaling is a great way to do that and to become more comfortable with that. Um, it can also help you work through some of whatever you're feeling on the court by admitting some of those things and, and, ha- and how to get through, through that. But uh, I agree, Josh, that some players are more naturally inclined like you. I probably like that aspect of the sport. Um, not that I don't like playing doubles and, and <clears throat> being in a team environment. I think that's that's fun too, but there's like something really cool and challenging about being on the, your own and and getting into kind of the, the fighting nature of the sport, but also like you said, 
uh, it can be physically demanding. You know, maybe that's the next thing we can talk about is um, that tennis matches are, I think, mentally and physically demanding because of, uh, I think it's a unique combination. It's a, if you look at a point, what are we doing? We're kind of sprint, rest, sprint, rest. But then you have to be able to do that for a really long time. And so how do you train that? That's tough. You got to be able to train sort of that anaerobic piece of sprint, rest, sprint, rest. But then you also have to be able to do that for potentially two plus hours. And, and some matches, depending on the level you're playing or whatever, they could go three, four, maybe more. And, and there's a connection between your physical energy and your ability to focus, your ability to regulate your emotions. Um, and, and we got to recognize that. So you know, what's your breaking point? How do you train for this? This is a very hard sport to train for. Um, and this is why when you go to a, like a professional tournament and you look at these players, they are amazingly conditioned athletes. I think in some ways, tennis players don't get enough credit for how strong and fit they are. Uh, but to do this, you need to be incredibly fit to, to play the game at that level. Um, and so I think as we go along, you know, let's tie this back a little bit into the nature of the sport. If you're playing a long match, how are you going to manage your emotional energy? Are you going to go on that emotional roller coaster? Because that's going to deplete some of your physical energy as well. Um, you know, can we look to use, say, um, emotions in a more judicious and positive way versus being emotional through the whole match. You know, that might be a slight kind of wordplay in English there, but I think, you know, we can choose to show emotion in certain instances versus being emotional and judgmental about everything that happens. That's a very exhausting way to do it. And, you know, the famous um, basketball coach, John Wooden, talks about how emotionalism leads to inconsistency in performance, right? Because you're up and down, you're judgmental and so forth. And I think that's, uh, you know, part of the, the challenge with being out there on your own. You're not getting any counsel from people. You've got to manage that whole thing. And, you know, how do you learn to manage these mental and physical energy demands over the course of a potentially long match? It's tough. It is definitely tough. I mean, um, if you've been out there in its third set and you've been out there for two and a half hours, especially out, you know, maybe it's, maybe you're playing outside, it's the hot sun and you're drained. Are you going to be at your best mentally during that time? Maybe, you know, I, I think I would say you have a, you have a, a higher likelihood of that. If you've you know gone through the process of, of specifically training your mind, for that situation, not just expecting, you know, for your physical skills to take over in that, in that scenario. Um, but you know, when it comes to that situation, how are your decision-making skills late in the third set? How, you know, how are you doing at handling pressure in that moment? How is your self-talk, right? How are these, some of these different, um, th these different mental skills that, that we've talked, you know, we talk about a lot, um, how are they and how are they affected by number one, by the moment, right? Late in the third set is going to be higher pressure, but also based on 
how physically exhausted you may be. And, and you, you mentioned, you know, how fit, especially at the highest levels of the game, these athletes really are. And I think a big reason for that, and maybe we could have touched on this with the individual aspect is especially at those high levels of the game, any weakness will be exploited. If you're not quick, quick enough to cover the court, that will be exploited. If you don't have the endurance to last in a long match, once you get in that third set, that will be exploited. And that will, you know, we, we talk about comparisons. Um, players talk. Players know each other. You know, oftentimes if you're playing somebody, either you've played them before or one of, you know, one of your peers has. So, you know, players build up a reputation for better or worse. So if there are certain holes in your game, mental or physical, you know, that, that will be known and potentially exploited by opponents. Um, so, and, and as we think more about the physical demands of the game, um, yeah, I mean, thinking about that connection between our um, physical and mental energy and, um, you know, being able to sort of manage that and managing our, our energy, especially, you know, in a third set or even late in a second set, um, you know, I, I think using that time that we have in between points, using that time we have in between changeovers, maybe even in between sets in a way that, you know, where we've planned out, are we using some breathing? Are we, um, you know, for feeling tight, are we shaking out our, our arms, um, shaking out our legs in, in terms of, you know, trying to release some of that physical tension? Um, and, and maybe, you know, maybe thinking about how we can conserve some of our energy at, you know, at, at certain key moments. Um, the, you know, I, I think there's a difference between, you know, sometimes you see a player will just give up a game um, where maybe they're, you know, cer- certainly not something that, that is to be um, recommended, but maybe there are certain points to expend a little bit more energy or a little bit less, depending on the match situation. If you have a really important whole, uh, you know, service game coming up in the next game and it's 40 love on the opponent's serve, maybe that's not where you decide to expend all of your all of your energy in that moment, which I think we actually saw from Nadal in the Australian open final. Um, so, so the, the, the physical demands definitely contribute to some of the challenges and, and that connection between the mental and physical, um, I think has a lot to do with how challenging, um, this sport can really be. Yeah. And I think when you're out there, you're hitting on a good point, Josh, energy management really becomes a, a key thing to focus on. Um, you know, Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz talk about that in their book, The Power of Full Engagement, really more from an energy management way of constructing your day, et cetera. But yeah, some of your decisions on the tennis court probably should be looked at through the lens of managing your energy. Um, yes, we saw Nadal do that. He definitely was managing his energy when he would let certain balls go. Um, do we recommend, say, throwing the last couple of games of a set to get to the next one? No, not always, but yeah, maybe. It, de- it really depends. What is your energy level? Um, I know I have, uh, uh, knowing that there was a third set 10-point tiebreaker and it was down big in the second set, knowing where my energy level was, I definitely have thrown the end of the set just to get myself ready for the, for the third set tiebreaker. And to be honest, Josh, every time I've done that, I've won those matches. Um, so 
again, not necessarily recommended, but it depends on the circumstances of those things. Um, great point about exploiting the weaknesses here. Um, we've talked about from the fighter's mind how fatigue is the enemy of the will to win. So fatigue, with more fatigue, your will to win naturally goes down. Now, of course, we can train ourselves not to do that. Um, but that's when we talk about you trying to break your opponent mentally, making the match physical, getting them fatigued is a great path toward breaking your opponent mentally. And I think when Andre Agassi retooled his game uh, after he started working with Brad Gilbert, more towards where he would be running players from coast to coast, you know, he's kind of sitting in a nice dominant core position right on the baseline, giving them little recovery time. He saw guys getting gassed, and when they get gassed, then they're not they're not able to put up that mental fight. So he'd be winning matches, you know, three and one, three and two. Things would get easier maybe after the first few games. So depending on what your strengths are, um, making a match physical can be a really great way to, to finding that. Because everybody has a breaking point from a physical, mental perspective. And I think if we... Now turn it back to ourselves, right? How do we how do we train around that? We have to train ourselves that our breaking point won't occur, say, in the timeline of a match. But that's what kind of good physical and mental shape we're in, is that we've pushed it, say, beyond where um, we would even get to in a match. So that's the kind of conditioning one needs to try to aspire to get to, is that I won't break in, you know, three hours. You know, maybe I'll break at hour five, giving my conditioning or six or whatever. Um, and this becomes really important for players who are playing, you know, events where there might be two matches in a day. Can you uh, be in such great shape that your physical and mental breaking point won't occur in that that time span? That's a challenge for for our training is understanding that we all have a breaking point. Can I continue to push it out so we, I don't reach that? Um, and it feels great when you get there to a place where hey, I just played a really long match and I was able to keep my energy at a decent level and I was able to keep my wits about me and keep my desire to win um, high. Um, so I think that that's uh, something that we can do in, in, to respond to the mental and physical uh, demands of the sport. Definitely. And we, in, in one of our recent episodes, um, we talked about that level three of tennis IQ keeping the opponent's side of the court in mind. And I think, I think what you're saying has a lot to do with that, but um, sort of the other side of this, um, knowing that everybody has their breaking points. So does your opponent. And remembering that in the third set, your opponent is probably physically exhausted as well. Um, and, and what can you do to contribute to that or to potentially exploit that? Maybe it's making one one extra shot. You're behind in the point. Let's just get one extra ball in play. Maybe you end up winning the point, but maybe you don't, and that contributes to your opponent getting a little bit more tired. Or maybe it's you know trying out new tactics in that in that in that moment, knowing that your opponent is probably physically and mentally exhausted. Um, so so I think you know having an understanding and a knowledge of this um, make it easier to exploit and understand the opponent's side of the court. And I think that could bring us now to another challenge of the sport, 
is we've often referred to it as a combat sport. It's a fighting sport. <clears throat> but most players don't necessarily bring that approach. And, and I, I know we covered this in our in our discussions of level three and other times that we've talked about tennis IQ is that what do most players do? They see it more as a technical contest, a skill-based contest. It's more about them and that that would be more of a level two aspect of tennis IQ. But yet it is, this is a fight. And I think the fact that we're not physically engaged with the opponent, you know, we're not coming off the court with bruises and cuts and broken bones, um, actually is what makes it mentally challenging. Because if we were in a fight and let's say we acted like you're perhaps normal tennis player and you threw a punch and you missed, you're not going to take, you don't have the time to chastise yourself for like being the worst fighter in the world because you missed a punch. You'll end up on the ground knocked out. And, you know, so in, in, in boxing, not that boxing isn't mentally challenging or fighting, it certainly is and there's definite issues around the fear of being hurt that we don't necessarily have in tennis, but um, the fact that they're physically engaged constantly means that um, the feedback they're getting is is really all about the fight, and um, you have to stay engaged with it. If we can, as tennis players, learn from that, learn the intensity of what it re- is required to fight a fight, to fight an opponent as opposed to fighting ourselves and thinking that this is about perfection and technical uh, aspects of the sport, um, then I think we can handle that better. But I think a lot of players need to learn that this is a fight. Um, That's why I've I've often recommended on our episodes taking a look at the book The Fighter's Mind and understanding how do people in fighting disciplines approach what they do and – as you read that book, try to take away, all right, how could I apply some of these lessons to the tennis court? Um, one of the biggest ones I learned through that book, Josh, was just the level of intensity, like to bring a fighting intensity to the contest. Um, it's also, you'll see in, in at least two of the chapters, the notion of breaking the opponent mentally being the primary goal. Um, and the more that you understand that, the more that you can try to do that intentionally, the more things will change for you. Um, but I do think that's a, that's kind of a – because we're not physically engaged, us. I feel like that's part of the fighting nature of the sport that can be hard for players to grasp. Definitely. Um, I, w- I would say most players probably don't necessarily think of the sport in that way. Um, I, I think you know uh, m- many players think of the sport – as sort of um, something very technical, which in a certain way it is, right? We, yeah. we talk about how it, it is a technical sport, um, especially if we compare it to some other sports where people can rely on their athleticism a bit more. Tennis is definitely more technical and, and because you have to, you know, learn at least to a certain extent, the proper technique to hit various shots, to play at, you know, to play at a high level. Um, however, when you're out there who wins on a given day is generally not a competition of whose technique is better or whose strokes look better. Um, I think a great example of this is Daniel Medvedev where he hits 
some really awkward looking shots, some shots that the, you know, most tennis coaches would maybe scratch their head at, at, at times in terms of, you know, it, it not necessarily looking textbook and not even necessarily looking pretty at times, looking, you know, un, quite unorthodox. Um, however, he's the type of player who's gotten to the top of the game for other reasons. Um, and I think, you know, oftentimes when players evaluate their performances, it comes down in their mind, it may come down to their strokes and, and just their strokes. Okay. This, this shot wasn't working for me. Um, however, when you remember the tennis is a combat sport, it's simply a matchup between you and your opponent on the other side of the net. It doesn't need to be pretty. You can win ugly as, you know, as, as we've talked about with, with Brad Gilbert, um, you can certainly win ugly. You can certainly change things up. Um, you just have to be a little better than the guy, the, the, the person on the other side of the net from you. Um, it doesn't, you know, you, you don't have to be perfect. We, we also have talked about how, you know, statistically, even the best players in the world are losing almost 50% of their points on a given year. So you're going to win points. You're going to lose points. You just have to be a bit better than that person on the other side of the net from you. So I think keeping that in mind is, imper- is Im- important um, that you don't have to be perfect. Your strokes don't have to be textbook or exactly where you want them to be in order to win the match, in order to beat that guy, the, that person on the other side of the net from you, you just have to be a bit better than that. And if you haven't listened to our episode about playing level three of tennis IQ, I think this really factors directly into that. So that would be a great episode to get more on on how to do this. Um, yeah, because it's not only the strokes, Josh, it's even if you think of Medvedev, it's the movement. It's Sometimes his movement looks a little bit weird and awkward because he's got kind of a different body than most, but he makes it work. And he's, he's great at anticipating and, um, and he gets to a lot of balls. So yeah, he may not be textbook. He may be difficult to copy. Uh, I haven't seen too many young players, you know, hitting the Medvedev forehand um, as effective as it is. It just seems hard to copy. Um, and a lot of things he does uh, are hard to copy, but it works for him. And it isn't obviously a barrier to him becoming the best that he can become. Uh, so I think it's a lot of credit to him for developing a unique style that works. Um and obviously, he's, he's, he's quite mentally tough. Um, I think perhaps maybe our last one we should talk about, Josh, is the, uh, the different roles that we as tennis players play. Um, you know, we're the player, we're the coach, we're the line judge. Maybe we also need to be our own biggest fan or cheerleader. Um, how do you see that playing out for, for players? Why, why is that so hard? I think there's a couple a couple big reasons. So if we if we think about those those three big roles, right, the the player, the coach, and the line judge, um, they they each have their own challenges. So I think we've talked a lot about the the role of the player here and why, from a player's perspective, it can be tough physically, mentally, um, you know, the individual aspect. Um, but the fact that you have to be your own coach and you have to decide what plays you want to run, right? What you want to do strategically, how you're going to handle the situation emotionally, right? How you're going to talk to yourself as if you had a coach out there with you, 
how can you be your own best coach and talk to yourself in a way that's going to be helpful, both instructionally, um, you know, having instructional self-talk to tell your tell yourself or instruct yourself on how you want to play um, in terms of a strategic aspect, but also in terms of, you know, motivationally and, and how you, um, you know, pump yourself up. All right, let's go, you know, come on. This is, um, you know, in, in terms of that side of things. So um, I think that's, you know, there, there's, there's definitely challenges there um, that, that don't exist in other sports. And then that last piece of being, of being a line judge is something I would say very unique to tennis, you know, there's, uh, you know, in, in basketball, for instance, if you're playing pickup, uh, players will call their own fouls, but never in a, in an official match. Where in tennis, that's pretty much the default, unless you're playing, um, you know, maybe at the at the professional level, or you know, in college tennis, often there's maybe a, a roaming umpire or two. Um, at the highest levels, you know, the, a chair umpire. Um, but it, it it varies. It it definitely varies. But most of the time, you are going to have to call your own lines. And we, and we certainly we you know we, we devoted an episode on cheating, um, and that certainly exists. I think across all levels of the sport, unfortunately. But um, you know, kn- knowing how to navigate these situations that you might be in, um, knowing that your opponent might make a line call that you disagree with, knowing that you will be forced to make challenging line calls often this this sport is a is a not a sport of you know feet or yards um but it's a sport of inches or um you know so it's it's a matter of okay if if the ball is really close to the line and and maybe you didn't see it or maybe you did see it and it, it you you think it's it's actually an inch out or two inches out being able to make that call. And then maybe there's a disagreement. Maybe there's some sort of a dispute. Um, so, so again, these are the types of things that we don't see in terms of um, opponents going at it in that way, in terms of line calls, in terms of, um, you know, making those sorts of judgments that we do in other sports. Can you imagine if in basketball, let's just say, um, the players rather than, you know, trash talking and, and the types of engagements they generally get into um, in the NBA were, were arguing about fouls and whether or not they had been fouled or whether or not the ball actually went out of bounds. Um, so, you know, I, 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 instead they, they argue with the referee, but in, in tennis where you have to be your own, you know, referee or umpire, really um, you take on that additional role and you take on that additional um, responsibilities that come along with that role. Yeah, and I think it's not that cheating doesn't take place in other sports. It's, I mean, what sport are athletes not trying to trick the official or get away with as much as they can? You see that with soccer, diving, you know, even in the NBA, players will tug the jerseys or, you know, do things like that. So um, argue with the officials over calls. So it's not that there isn't that sort of behavior in those sports, but um, there is a, a third party who's supposed to be in charge of the, the rules and, and keeping things going. Like you said, in tennis, the default is not so much. We don't have that at every level. And even uh, even at like the high, highest level of college tennis, when we have a chair umpire, that person is – it's one person. It can't see everything, and uh, um, it's an imperfect system. You know, I, I recently wrote a blog post about – cheating in tennis and, and, and how to make this better. 
Uh, but it makes me think about even both the coach and the, the line judge role. Think about when we have a player begin playing tournaments. They're young. We send them out. And they've had some training as a player, but they probably have had little training as a coach. Probably very little training as a line judge, yet we're expecting them to really comport themselves in a, in a positive way out there. It's very difficult to do that. Um, and, and I think the more training that we can get as being it, that fulfilling that coach role, fulfilling that line judge role, can, can as a sport, can we do better there? I think 100%. I mean, there, what other youth sports have no coach when you're playing? Don't know of that many. I mean, I'm sure there are some. Um, you know, even things like figure skating or equestrian sports, gymnastics, obviously, during the performance, the coaches are not saying anything or the trainers aren't saying anything. But that's a very finite amount of time. Um, but in sports where it goes over the course of, you know, potentially hours, the coaches are involved, they're talking. And um, I think that there would be some benefit to that in tennis of how, how we do that logistically is obviously hard um probably comes down to money and so forth and that, that that's probably a big reason why we don't have it um but something could be figured out there i'm sure um you know i think with the coaching piece another aspect josh you had brought up <clears throat> prior to our recording was tennis is a sport where you can't call timeout can't say it's hey, it's three all 30 all yeah let's i need to talk to my coach let's let's call a timeout so we can figure out what to do here it would be great if you had that level of coaching. So uh, this is an aspect of developing that coaching part of you to know what to do at, at say, 3-all, 30-all, big moment here. Um, maybe a mini timeout is taking a little extra time doing going through your yellow light routine between points, uh, something like that. Um, yeah, our changeovers there, kind of mini timeouts. Could you take a bathroom break? Yeah, that's probably our only kind of unofficial timeout, but in general, we don't have that. And so that's another aspect of why we as players need to develop that coaching uh, aspect of our of our play so that we know how to handle <clears throat> that, that piece. Um, so that I do think is unique, Josh, in that we are at least those three roles out there, the player, the coach, the line judge, um, Maybe, yeah, the biggest fan, that might be part of the motivational voice, might be from somebody just cheering you on and you can do it, I believe in you, that that type of thing. Um, but I think it's really, that that is a challenging thing that not everybody's necessarily aware of. I would I would say most, most players probably aren't aware of those roles. And I would add in that, that most coaches, you know, don't necessarily think to train players at all three roles. Right. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, w one of the aspects that a coach can certainly help players with is trying to be more self-reliant when they're out there, knowing that it's an individual sport, knowing that you have these roles. Um, and, and one way to do this is by, you know, doing, doing more match play. Um, we've talked a lot about the benefits of, um, you know, playing more match play, playing more matches, um, and, you know, one of the benefits is that, that you learn, you learn pretty quickly how important these different roles are. I mean, I, I don't think any player has ever, you know, any, any player has ever gone through junior tennis without having certain disputes on line calls. And it, it happens at other levels of the game too, but not as often or as frequently as, 
as in junior tennis, I would say. Um, and, you know, so you, whether you like it or not, you have to develop that role as, you know, as, as the line judge and have to at times be involved in those disputes where you make a call that somebody disagrees with and they call you out on it and you have, and you go through that um, engagement at that, at that time. And, you know, maybe, maybe the individual is more shy, not as confrontational. Um, and, and I've actually seen that manifest in terms of somebody, you know, not wanting to make those close calls or, or giving, giving the, um, the close call to their opponent in order to avoid the conflict, um, which is, you know, certainly not what we want to be doing in terms of being the best competitor that we can be. Um, so, so it, it's inevitable that as it, during a player's career, this, again, this happens during, you know, USTA adult leagues as well, certainly during college tennis. Um, but, but there are always situations regarding line calls where it's a judgment call that a player has to make. And again, we've talked about the cheating aspect as well. Um, and then when it comes to, to coaching, um, I think there, there are things that the coaches can do to best prepare players for that additional role that they have during matches as well. Um, you know, uh, I, I think it was, it was an interesting conversation that we had with Jorge Capistani, um, one of our earliest episodes where he talked about um, a, sp- a particular training method where a coach, you know, where two players are playing during practice, um, playing points or playing a set, and the coach is behind one of those players sort of talking in their ear, talking to them in between points, helping them plan out what they might do in that next point. And what that does is it helps to train that athlete to think on their own. And maybe they're using some of the advice or some of the words of their coach when they're out there. And maybe they're using some of their own thoughts and some sort of combination or, you know, other things that they've heard from their parents or past coaches. Um, but it's a skill. It's a skill to, to the, that needs to be built in terms of being a great coach to yourself in terms of how you talk to yourself, in terms of how you run plays and on the strategic side, in terms of handling high pressure situations, um, knowing when to use certain uh, mental tools like breathing, um, like slowing things down, using that yellow light routine or even a red light routine. Um, you know, if, if it's love 40 or you've just double faulted twice and, you know, or your game suddenly more erratic than, than you'd like. Um, so I, I think learning those skills um, takes time. First of all, the player's not going to have that the first tournament they, they enter. Um, but I think the, the coach can do a lot to help instill that, whether that be during practice, whether that be during match reflection, going over a match, thinking about, you know, what went well, what didn't go so well, how would we handle certain situations differently if we could, you know, the next time that you're in them. Um, so the, the coach definitely plays a role in helping the player um, understand those, those different roles that they have as the player, as the coach, as the line judge, and to gain experience and to improve at being the best, the best possible at each of those roles. When we talked to Jorge Capistani about that, I liked how he phrased it in terms of what he says to the players, like, essentially, I'm going to be your brain out here. And so he's dictating the plays, what, what's happening, helping the player understand 
the dynamics of the match, all as a way of demonstrating how one can think and analyze and, and be doing that on the fly. And that takes time to train that, but I really like the approach is, all right, I'm going to be your brain for today to show you how to, to do this because it's, it's difficult to learn that. Um, players can learn that on their own, of course, through experience, lots of matches, etc. But you know, it could also be a head start. And I, I've done this a, a few times with players, and it's been really great to get them to call a play or tell them the play. And uh, the focus tends to be better. The purpose uh, of the play tends to be to be better. I think another way coaches can train the coaching voice or the coaching role is something we learned from Bill Tim which was, you know, he has this corrective methodology for how to fix all of your unforced errors. And so when he had, when he's working with players, he has a essentially like a whiteboard at the back of the court with the, the methodology and the questions that you go through um, in that methodology. So just to maybe recap it at a high level, um, after you make a mistake, you go through a series of questions. The first question is, did you make solid contact with the ball? If the answer is no, then the, the correction is watch the ball or track the ball better and emphasize your follow-through. All right. So if your error then was, all right, yeah, I did make solid contact, but it went in the net. Okay. The correction there is have a stronger intention of hitting your primary target. Your primary target is always over the net. So, all right, now we've, we've made an error, but it, I made solid contact. It went over the net, but it didn't go in the lines. So it went long, it went wide. So the correction there could be a couple things. It might be more intention of hitting your target, your secondary target. Primary is over. Secondary is in the court. Might be your intention of hitting sort of into your comfort zone. Um, and maybe that requires a little bit more spin to drop the ball in. Uh, maybe it requires a little less pace because you went maybe too far on power and you, you lost your accuracy. Um, and so when players make mistakes in, in Coach Tim's practice, they have to go through that methodology to understand how to correct their mistakes um, during the match in non-technical ways, right? There was nothing really technical about that. And, and most players, their mistakes are not necessarily due to poor technique. It's just some aspect of focus and intention. And Coach Tim talked to us about the, the reason for this is it helps reduce the anxiety of knowing why certain things are breaking down in a match. It's actually quite simple. And this gives the player the ability to know how to fix all of the errors that they're making rather than wondering, oh, what, what's wrong? What do I need to do? What do I need to correct? It's these really three basic easy things. So the more that you can train your players to go through that methodology – uh, I think it can reduce a lot of that anxiety. And then you're building a really good coach there who's able to see the essentials. Because part of that corrective methodology that I love is what are the priorities of a good shot? That you make solid contact, that it goes over the net, and it goes in the lines. I mean, how simple is that? That's what we're trying to do. Now, of course, you know, you're going to do it at varying levels of power and spin and, and so forth. But if you can boil it down to those essentials that that's what you need to do, tennis becomes a little less complicated, especially during the fight where we I think we've been emphasizing today and in other episodes, it's not so much about, you know, in a match, the technical skills. It's about you 
learning this fighting dynamic and, and also being able to coach your way through. Awesome. No, and I, I think that's, that's really important. I mean, as um, with, with uh, coach Tim's um, methodology, what I, th- what I think it does is um, it, it helps a player be more objective about a result as well um, where, okay, I missed the shot. I didn't miss that shot because I'm a bad tennis player or because my forehand is horrible. I missed that shot because, you know, you, you go through that process and you, you know, or you had, or you're aware enough to say, Hey, was I, what happened there? Was I too close to the ball? Was my, was it my follow through? Did I not take my racket back early enough? Um, what happened? And, you know, identifying what, took place or what went wrong rather than taking ownership over it and identifying with it uh, makes a world of difference in terms of how we view the situation and how we respond emotionally to it. Yeah. Cause I think oftentimes the self image of a tennis player is often built on our failures, not our successes. And I think this is a key aspect of it is, you know, a mistake is just a mistake. And if you could properly diagnose why it happened, which is the reason for that corrective methodology. You can get to that quickly. Um, it's easier to move on to the next point and and understand how to how to solve that problem. Um, any other points, Josh, we should bring up in terms of unique challenges of the sport of tennis? I think I think we've we've covered a lot. Um, I mean I think you know we we always mention at the end of the episode that we'd we'd love to to hear from you. And if there are certain things that, that you think we've you know, didn't mention or that, you know, we, we, we could have gone more in depth in, let us know. I mean, you know, shoot us an email, tennis IQ podcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. You know, we, we can address it in the future, certainly. Um, because, you know, we, we understand that, you know, our listeners are all different ages, all different levels in different locations. And, you know, th- there might be, there might be different challenges when, when you play. Um, maybe, you know, it could be on the mental side. It could be on the, um, physical side. Um, it, it, it could have to do with, you know, in terms of managing your time and, and thinking about how you best use your time on the court in terms of in between points in between games sets, um, could be have, having to do with how you talk to yourself. It could have to do with, you know, various other things that we, that we discussed in this episode. So we you know, we would love to love to hear from you and, and any any thoughts that you have as it relates to this. Great ending there, Josh. Great conversation. Um, thank you all for listening. For more on today's episode, you can check out our show notes, as Josh mentioned. If you've got any feedback or questions, email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. You can also check out our Instagram account. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.